I don't know if you've noticed any changes in our program, but I just want to call your attention to a couple things. Um, we've had the vision statement and mission statement on the inside flap for the last year since we developed that vision statement and mission statement. And we felt like it was important that we add to that mission statement our value statements from which progresses our, our vision and mission. Our vision statement reads, love God, love people, and be transformed. We believe in changed lives. And we're gonna put, you've, you've noticed that this has been, vision statement number one has been in the, in the program for this month. We're gonna have a, a different one every one of the months for the next seven months until we've looked at every one of our, our value statements. Now these are found in, on our website, but it just, we just wanna call attention to them because they're so important. And the value statement number one is, has to do with prayer and it reads, everything we do begins or is preceded by prayer, sustained through prayer and empowered through prayer. Communication with God, seeking his face, his will, his plans. This includes individual prayer and a consistent corporate expression of prayer. I wanted to call your attention to that because we believe everything begins with prayer. Americans are interesting creatures. Americans seems to be, it seem to be obsessed with the new, the new. New cars, new houses, new clothes, new computers, the newest smartphone, the newest movie or the latest music. If it's not new, it's so five minutes ago. But we also seem to like the old. We listen to oldies on the radio. We like to buy and refinish antiques. Some like old classic automobiles or motorcycles. We like to celebrate the nostalgic past of the 60s or 50s or 70s or even 80s, even though that was before most of you were born. We watch movies about relic hunters and treasure hunters searching for old things, ancient treasures. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Temple of Doom, Tomb Raiders, the Da Vinci Code, National Treasure, movies that celebrate history in the past like, like Dunkirk or the one we saw just this week was The Darkest Hour. Why all this fascination with the old or with the history or looking back? Because ancient relics and, and history are considered valuable, not because they tell us just about our past, but they tell us stories. They, they tell us stories, they illuminate past information, things that we can learn from. Ancient writings teach us lessons, and that is valuable. Well, we, as people, we have an ancient treasure. We have an ancient treasure, it's very old and very valuable. The question we ask is what possible relevance could ancient writings have for us today? What possible relevance would ancient writings have for us today? Is there anything we can learn from a letter written nearly 2,000 years ago, written to a group of people in an ancient Greek city? What, if anything, does it say to us today? It's the so what question, so what about this? That's the question before us today as we begin our study of a 2,000 year old letter. It's called the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. First Corinthians for short, first because there's also a second Corinthians. First Corinthians was written to the Christian church in the city of Corinth which was located in what we know today as, as Greece. The city of Corinth 
had developed into a major metropolitan area. It's a lot like our major cities today. You go to Minneapolis or Milwaukee or Chicago, any major city, this was a major city, a large city in, in Greece. It was a seaport and it was a center of commerce and trade. They didn't have those giant green or, or orange cranes that you see in seaports, but they did the same thing. They exported and imported things by ship on the sea. That's what Corinth was. And much like our big cities today, Corinth had a reputation of being prosperous and wealthy. Not only that, but Corinth, Corinth had also become a byword for evil living. For evil living. They coined a Greek word in those days. I'm going to try to get it out. You don't have to repeat it, and it won't be on the test. But it's this Greek word that they coined was Corathiasisthai which meant to live like a Corinthian. Did you get that? Corathiasisthai, to live like a Corinthian. And what it meant was to live in a drunken moral debauchery. People who lived in reckless and riotous living. See, the Corinthians had two main gods, money and pleasure. Money and pleasure, sound familiar? Money and pleasure. And above the hill on the Acropolis in Corinth was this great temple of Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love. And the temple sponsored 1,000 priestesses who were sacred prostitutes. Part of their religion of love was for these women to go down into the city every evening and pick up men and have a religious experience. Prostitution is illegal in most cities in America today, but it's widely practiced everywhere. Sex trafficking and sex slavery is pervasive in our country, sometimes found hidden in the most unlikely of places. And people, that includes Eau Claire. There's sex trafficking and sex slavery happening even in our community of Eau Claire. Then there's the prostituting of oneself through internet pornography, which is even more pervasive and more hidden, but it happens. It happens. Chafin says the city, Corinth, had developed an unapologetic love of things and a love of pleasure. It was full of people who wanted to make money and have fun. Okay? Sound familiar? Make money, have fun. Materialism, drunkenness, and prostitution. And, of course, we find today that whole states have legalized the use of marijuana. Why? For, it started out medical purposes. But it's not for medical purposes, it's strictly for personal recreational pleasure. A legal drug for, just for pleasure. The names and faces and times have changed, but not the vices. The love of things, love of money, love of pleasure. This book, 1 Corinthians, is very relevant today because of the similarities in culture and values. Corinth could be any city in America. The author of 1 Corinthians, Paul, had started the church in Corinth and he stayed there to pastor them. In fact, he had won many of these first uh, converts in Corinth to Jesus Christ personally. Many of them. And Paul wrote this letter for, for three reasons. Three reasons. Now, we're going to take about eight months in Corinthians. Just so you know, we're going to take about eight months in Corinthians. But we we're going to do some background material today as we, as we move into this book. Paul wrote for three reasons. Number one, to set them right on the problems the Corinthians took lightly 
but Paul viewed as grave sins. They, they, there were some things they were doing or, or, or regarding, and they said, there's no big deal. And Paul said, no, it is a big deal. Second, to answer questions they had asked him to respond to. When you read through Corinthians, it's, you'll see once in a while it says, and, and you ask this, and this is the answer. And he was also to give some doctrinal teaching. In other words, some teaching about, about doctrine, Christian teaching, what we believe. Now, this, 1 Corinthians is not an exhaustive doctrinal treatise, but Paul addresses issues that they were dealing with in their personal lives and in the life of their church. Some of the issues he, he addresses, and uh, this is not exhaustive, but uh, some of the issues he addresses, number one, would be divisions in the church. Of course, we don't have any problem with divisions in the church today. Then there was a, a case of immorality or incest. He talks about marriage. He talks about how to be faithful to God in a totally permissive society. We have this incredibly permissive society. How do we maintain faithfulness to God? That's what they faced then, it's what we face today. He talks about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts, if, you're, if you don't know what those are, we'll get to that. It's, it's an amazing part of that. There's, the, there's 1 Corinthians 13, which is love. He talks about love all throughout this book. And then he talks about the resurrection. Now those are just a few of these things. Now, some of the people in this church at Corinth grew up religious. They were mostly the Jews. They were moral and they had this, this religious background. Others in this church had absolutely or no knowledge or, or very little knowledge of God. They had grown up in this godless, pagan, Greek culture and they didn't know anything about this one true God that, that, that loved people and wanted to have a relationship. They had never learned about a personal God or, or morals or right or wrong. Now in this gathering today, we're probably all over the map with, with how we grew up. Some here grew up Protestant or Catholic, maybe, maybe uh, Lutheran, Methodist, Nazarene, Presbyterian, Episcopal, Baptist, Pentecostal, you name it. You may have a background of morality like many religious people do. And of course, if you did, the tendency is to be legalistic and judgmental. And we find that that was the case in Corinth as well. Others here may not even be sure what religious is about, religion is about. You may, this may be really strange to you, and that's okay because we're all here to learn. But we all come from different backgrounds, no matter whether we came from this religious background with all this information, or no religious background with no information. There's gonna be something for everybody. Now our series is entitled, the series is entitled, The Church That Never Was, The Church That Could Be. The Church That Never Was, The Church That Could Be. Basically because Jesus set up the church to be this unified group of loving believers who all got along and they did everything right. But it just never was, okay? It never reached that point. But it, in spite of the fact of their shortcomings and the fact that it never was a perfect church, the book of 1 Corinthians helps us to discover how it can become the church it can be. So. He talks about the church that never was, but the church that it can be. And that's what we're gonna look at and say, how can we be the church that God has designed us to be? The church that can be. Now today we're gonna start with, with, with some questions about who are we, who are we? We're gonna cover the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians 1 and try to answer questions. Number one, who, who was Paul? Who was Paul? Number two, who are we? And three, who is God? Okay, 
three very simple questions. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Who was Paul? Who are we and who is God? Okay, let's turn to 1 Corinthians. We're gonna read the first nine verses. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. It's on page 923 if you wanna follow it in the, in the book in the rack in front of you. Nine, page 923 and it'll also be on the PowerPoint in front of you as well. 1 Corinthians 1. We're gonna read the first nine verses. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. We're gonna start with, who was Paul? Who was Paul? Now, when I receive an email from someone, I wanna know who it's from. If I don't recognize the name, it's usually said like a hot stock tip or ad for prescriptions or diet plan or new method for, for facelifts or something. If I don't recognize the name, I've been told by Pastor Damien, who's a tech expert, don't open it, okay? Just don't open that email. So if I don't know who it came from, I don't recognize them, I will usually delete it as quickly as possible. It's probably a virus that's trying to get into my computer. Well, if we're gonna take this letter, this email, this communique too seriously, we have to know who wrote it. Okay, fair enough. We have to know who wrote it. Who is it coming from? Who is Paul? Who was Paul and why should we listen to him in this letter that he wrote 2,000 years ago? Why should I listen to what he has to say? Well, first of all, Paul was called by God. Letter A, was called by God. Verse one says he was called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. This means that God chose Paul to do a job. An apostle started churches, and the apostles in general oversaw the early church. And this wasn't Paul's choice, it, it was God's choice. Uh, apostleship is not something we choose, like a college major, graduate degree, or occupation. I can't say, you know, I'm gonna change my major this semester from history to apostleship. Or I'm gonna go from pre-med to apostle. No, this is not a human choice. It's God's choice of making him an apostle. Now, I don't have this in your text, but if you can write down Ephesians 4.11, if you're taking notes, Ephesians 4.11, says it was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. It's important to understand that because it gives weight, it gives weight to this letter. Now, if you receive a letter from one of your coworkers, somebody you work with, and they say you're fired, you would just kind of laugh and say, yeah, right, nice joke, whatever. But you get the same letter, same words from your boss, you're probably gonna take it seriously because it means something. Why? Because the boss has the authority to hire and fire. Your coworker, no, they're just, they, they don't have any authority. Your boss speaks and it is done. 
Authority. It's important that we understand this whole issue of authority. We live in a culture that rejects authority, especially spiritual authority. We pick and choose what we believe and follow. You know, we, we take this, this authority, this authoritative word of God, and we say, well, you know, I don't like this part. Uh, this part's not politically correct, or I will obey this, but I won't obey that. And this permissive disrespect and attitude is prevalent in many churches today that reject God's clear teaching on issues such as marriage and fidelity and homosexuality and gender and you name it. They just say, I don't like how that comes across. I'm not going to follow that. See, this, the Bible, is God's word. It's God's word. We don't choose what we obey and what we don't obey. Any more than we choose laws, which laws are we going to obey? Of course, unless you're in the FBI or Justice Department, but that's, that's a whole different ballgame. That was a joke, okay, just making sure everybody knows. We can't choose what laws we obey and what we don't obey. And some people say, this is God's word, but I'm gonna pick and choose what I obey and what I don't obey. 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17 says, and how from infancy you have made known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God breathed. In other words, it it's, originates with God and it comes through human instruments. And Paul was the human instrument here that God breathed his word through. It's absolutely critical for us to establish this at the outset. Otherwise, we're wasting our time even looking at this letter because it's, who's Paul? All scripture is God breathed. This is God's word to us, to us. Now you may be here as someone who does not subscribe to that belief. Maybe you have questions about it. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, asking questions or whatever. But those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and are part of this church, this is the starting point. It's one of the non-negotiable values. You'll see that in next month's program. One of our non-negotiable values is that this is the word of God. And frankly, you know, I have nothing to say if the Word of God didn't say it. You know, I can give you opinions, and I can give you ideas, and I can give you, you know, fantasies and dreams and whatever, but unless the Word of God tells us, I have nothing to say but the Word of God. Then to emphasize this call that, that Paul has further, he says he was called by the will of God, by the will of God. Paul writes that he is an agent of God. He's acting on God's authority. In other words, he speaks for God, he speaks on behalf of God as his representative and as God's instrument. And, and we need to know these facts because Paul is gonna address some very, very tough issues. And he does not beat around the bush. And I won't either. The word of God doesn't beat around the bush. It's very direct. God's word does not beat around the bush. Hebrews 4.12 says this, for the word of God is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Paul, 
speaking the word of God. And thirdly, and I like this part, it says Paul is thankful. Verse four, Paul expresses Paul's thankfulness. Paul always seems to be thankful. Now, Paul didn't have an easy life. We, we, like, to, we like to have uh, less trouble and more good things happen to us. And, and it's easy to be thankful when things are going great, but when it's not, it's, you know, Paul was thankful in all circumstances. And he was especially thankful for these people in this church that were causing him pain. He was thankful for them. He was thankful, which meant that he really, really loved them because he was grateful to God for them. That was Paul in verses one and four. Now, let's move on to Roman numeral two. Who are we? Who are we? Who's he writing this to? Paul uses five phrases describing who he's writing to. And it's to them then, and it's to us today, okay? It was then and now. And first he describes the recipients of this letter as the local church, the local church. Verse two, to the church of God in Corinth. The church is the local expression of God's character. It's God's localized presence in a particular place. Yeah, God's everywhere, God's everywhere, but he expresses his presence through people, through people. When Jesus was on earth, he had a physical body, and he did all of his actions, his miracles, his healings, his signs and wonders, his teaching, through his physical body. And his whole purpose was to bring people into relationship with his Father, God, okay? He existed to reestablish that relationship with God. And he did all of that through his physical body while he was here on earth. Jesus, God in the flesh, when Jesus uh, ascended to heaven, he instituted the next phase of the kingdom of God, which was the church, the church. The church is Jesus' body, Jesus' physical presence on earth. Through this physical body, the church, Jesus now does all his actions, his miracles, his healings, signs, his wonders, his teachings, in order to bring people into relationship with God. We're talking about just walk across the room, the, the role that we have as people to bring people to God. The church exists in order to establish that relationship and help people understand the, the nature of the relationship so they too can know God as we know God. That's what our Connect Group's curriculum is about, just walk across the room, helping equip all of us so that we begin to understand our role to reestablish that relationship between people that don't know God, that are isolated from God, so they too can know God. That's the purpose of the church. Now, when I say I'm going to church, what comes to your mind? I'm going to church today, besides getting up early on your day off, okay? What, what comes to your mind? For most people, if they're honest, they say, if I'm going to church, I'm, I'm going to that building on Claremont and Keith in Eau Claire, okay? I'm going to church, and I'm thinking, I'm going to that building, okay? We tend to think of the church as a building. The church is not buildings. The church is people. It's not a building. The church is people. It's people. 
Now, God, God spoke to me in a very clear way once about this. We, when we were pastoring in, in Lakewood, we, had a, we started out in a little church that had about a, it seated about 120 people in the, in the sanctuary. And it was crowded. We were in two services, and, and we needed to build. We had, a, we had a portable building that was 24 by, th- by 36, and we had about 50 kids, uh, grade school and younger, in that building. It was chaos. It was, it was miserable. We were trying to figure out. We couldn't get funding, and I'm just stressed about trying to figure out how we're going to raise money. And I'm 33 years old, and I don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm doing yet. You know, it's one of those things where, and, and I'm trying to figure out how are we going to do this. So I was really stressed about getting a building project going. And, and one Sunday, I was up on the platform, and it's like God just stopped me dead. And he said to me, you build my church. And then it's as if he took his hand and finger and pointed out to the people there and he said, they are my church. People are the church. It's not a building. It's the people. And he said, let me worry about the building. (laughs) And I did. I did. And of course, eventually that all came. But basically, it was taking my focus off the building, the facility, which is not the church. It's, it's a building. The church is people. You are the church. We get hung up on facilities. We want to build nice, new, renovated, welcoming facilities in order to welcome people, build friendships, worship, pray, receive teaching, grow spiritually. And that's all good. But the building is not the church. The people are the church. The church is the people of God. The local church is the physical expression of the people of God in a location. We are part of the local church in Eau Claire. We're not the only one, just the best one. No, I'm just kidding. We're not the only one. We're one of many. I have the privilege of meeting with pastors once a week in a pastor's meeting, get to hear what God's doing all over the place, and God is doing great things. There are great churches in Eau Claire, great pastors and great people. We are one of the local expressions in Eau Claire. We're the church in Eau Claire, but we're one of that group. One. If we think we're the only one, we're a cult. (laughs) Not a church, okay? Just so you know. We're not the only one. We're one of many. And it's important that we understand that, that we are part of the greater body of Christ. It has has nothing to do with the building. It has to do with the people, the people of God. Now, we meet together on Sundays and primarily in homes during the week. And we have worship rehearsals, special gatherings. We do all kinds of things. But basically, we're the church in dispersion most of the week. Most of the week. The local church, God's expression, God's representatives, the expression of who God is. We are spread throughout this region. Now, we need to meet together occasionally to, you know, I mean, it it talks in the scripture about meeting together consistently to to encourage one another. Uh, We need to get organized and coordinated, etc. I have a friend who injured himself once, and he described his injury as this leg chose to go that way, and this leg chose to go that way, and I, I hurt myself. I fell. And sometimes some churches are like that. They're kind of, you don't know which way. We need to get organized and coordinated so that we have a, a focus, a vision, a mission, and so we know where we're going because we are a body that functions every part important. That's another sermon. So Paul uses, in this process, he uses three qualifiers, two words and a phrase to describe the local church. Okay, Very important that we get this so that we understand who we are are. The first word is reserved. Reserved. The word used is holy, 
but it means reserved. Verse two says, called to be holy. Now, the word reserved is used for a lot of things. Um, you have reserved parking. There's a table reserved for a wedding party. Uh, you make reservations for a table at a restaurant. You call ahead and get reservations for a hotel room because you're traveling or reservations for an airline flight or a rental car. And if you have something reserved, it's set apart for you exclusively. Reserved. Now, as part of the local church, the body of Christ, you are reserved. You are reserved. You're reserved for God. You're set apart for his use exclusively. Exclusively. It's called holy. They call it being set apart. In other words, God has exclusive rights to you. Being holy means that everything we are and do is for God's purposes and his will. You're reserved. He's got reservations on you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. He holds reservations. We are reserved for his purposes. Now, some of us will say, great, I'm reserved. I'm supposed to be holy. But do you know what I'm like most of the time? <laughs> uh, does God want to use me? What is he going to do? Well, here's, here's the next word he uses. He uses the word sanctified. You're not only reserved, but you're sanctified. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, sanctified is a process. Is a process. It's being made perfect. The, the message says it's being cleaned up by Jesus. <laughs> I like that. So being cleaned up by Jesus. That doesn't get us off the hook for reservations God has in our life, but it tells us that it's a process, that Jesus is the one who's cleaning us up. He reserves us, and then he works on us to clean us up. Jesus is the one that cleans us up. And as we go through Corinthians, we're going to see that God had a lot of cleaning up to do in these people, in them and in us, in us. How long does it take for him to clean us up and to sanctify us? Uh, our whole lives. <laughs> Isn't that fun? It's our whole life. It takes a whole lifetime. He cleans us up. The Corinthian people were from all kinds of sinful, evil past. Everybody had a past. Just like if we were to admit or we'd tell our histories, every one of us have things that we did wrong in, the ba in our background, things that we're ashamed of. We all have a history. We all have a past. But God is in the business through Jesus of cleaning us up and sanctifying us and making us more like Jesus. These people had, and we'll see when we get to the middle of 1 Corinthians, they had done every sin you can imagine. Now they're the local expression of the church of God. They're reserved, sanctified. They're not arrived, they're just in process or in route, they're on a journey. So are you, so are you. The thir third phrase describing the local church is those who call in the name of Jesus. Those who call in the name of Jesus. We are a people who call in the name of Jesus. We're not rationalists. We believe in the spiritual realm. Now, I know that anybody that's been to school, and all of us have been, know that there's always this argument of rationalist versus the spiritual, and whether it's in high school, junior high, college, and the, the conflict between evolution and intelligent design or the philosophy or whatever it is, there's always that some people that say you have to be able to prove it scientifically or it doesn't exist. 
Evolutionists are pure rationalists. They won't believe in anything if it can't be scientifically proven, as if evolution could be proven, which I don't believe it can be. But we believe in a supernatural. We believe in a God who transcends all of that. A God who is a personal God, who cares, who created, who can be called on, who can be communicated with. That's why Paul, when he was on the Areopagus, he said, you, he saw all these religious people and he said, I see that you're religious because you have all these gods. He said, but let me tell you about the God who did it all. And that he's a God who you can communicate with and talk with and who loves you and cares about you. This is, we are a people who call on God. We pray and he answers. He hears. This is a personal relationship. It was revolutionary back then. It's revolutionary today. Some people still don't understand or believe that God cares, and he will listen, and if you pray, he'll answer. A people who call on God. It's not this rationalistic idea that somehow we have. I have to chuckle every time scientists make a new discovery. A few years ago, they discovered the uh, giant squid it's, it's a squid that was like 35 to 56 feet long. It was in two to 3,000 feet of water off the coast of Japan. Now, man has been to the moon and back, okay? And they had seen a, a dead giant squid, but they'd never seen one alive. And when they saw this, it was only on camera because they couldn't get there to see it. But they discovered a live giant squid on camera way down with a submarine that was actually going down at two to 3,000 feet. God made the giant squid. Okay, rationalists can't measure God or describe God so they don't believe in him. We're discovering, I just read yesterday about exoplanets. These are planets that are, we can now find, that we found through the telescope that's circling out in space, uh, planets uh, of other stars that are outside our Milky Way. And of course our Milky Way is just, our sun is one star in the billions in the Milky Way and the Milky Way is one of billions of galaxies, and they're now starting to discover other planets in other galaxies. You know, it's just like, it just blows your mind. And, and this is not rational, it's God creating it. God is the creator, can't figure it out. And we are a people who call on that God. We communicate with him. So who are we? First, we're the local church, all of that is included. Secondly, letter B, we're recipients of God's love and grace. We're recipients of God's love and grace, verse four. Now grace is unearned favor, it's unearnable favor. And we really try to earn God's favor. We come from a rough background and, and, and we wanna earn God's favor, so we point out to God, that's what I used to do, I don't do that anymore. So we say, I'm gonna earn God's favor by telling him what I used to do that I don't do anymore. Or we come from a religious background, a moral background, and we think that we're pretty good. And so we say, I've never done that, and I don't do those things, so God, you must accept me. It's, it's like thinking we've earned that favor from God. As if not doing certain things makes us acceptable to God. Both are seeking God's favor on the basis of what they don't do. It's like saying to my wife, don't you love me because I don't beat you? 
how stupid a statement is that? But some people say, God, you must love me because I don't offend you anymore and I haven't done that and I haven't offended. No, that's not why he loves us. He loves us unconditionally. Unconditionally, no matter what we have done in the past. Or others try to gain acceptance by what they do. See, it's by what we don't do or what we do and we think that somehow we can gain God's favor. No, we're recipients of unmerited favor and grace by God. Sometimes we just feel like we have to impress God by what we don't do or what we do. And that God will not love us the way we are. We've auditioned for people's favor our whole life and feel somehow we have to audition for God's love. We don't. He loves us, period. We are recipients, receivers of God's unconditional favor and grace. You know what that does? It levels the playing field. We're all in the same boat, we're all in the same field. There's nobody better, worse, whatever. Basically, we're all in the same boat. No room for pride, folks. That's where we're at. All in the same place. One of the greatest discoveries, Chafin writes, in life is that nothing in our minds or our hearts or our actions is hidden from God, and he still loves us. Letter C, who are we? We are recipients of spiritual riches. Verse five says, for in him you have been enriched in every way, all your speaking and in all your knowledge. That doesn't mean God doesn't bless us with physical wealth. He does that too. He says he's given us the ability to create, create wealth. But he's talking about relational wealth here. In Luke 12, 21, Jesus speaks of a man who had amassed vast amounts of wealth but was not rich toward God. Was not rich toward God. The Corinthian people lived in a culture much like ours. They had produced an incredible amount of material wealth and had produced a people that was spiritually bankrupt. Paul writes of spiritual riches, enriched in him in speech and knowledge. He's speaking about relational riches, the God-man relationship, the fact that there's a, a rich relationship with this God. Richness in relationship. There are a lot of people around us who have great material wealth, but they have no friends. They have no relational wealth. We had neighbors who were shirt-tail relatives that, who had, had shirt-tail relatives who won the lotto. It was one of the big, one of the early big wins of the lotto. And they said, you know, it was, it was great at first. He said everybody loved them. They quit their jobs. They, they went out and bought everything they could think of. And after about three months of spending and buying, they, they grew tired of it. Their friends were no longer friends because they became jealous of them. They began to get anonymous phone calls and threats and solicitations for money and asking for help or whatever. Finally, they had to move out of state to find peace. And they would say that the riches ruined their life. Yet we spend our entire life seeking those riches instead of relational riches. Spiritual, relational riches with God, our Father. You can have all the money in the world, 
doesn't do anything. That's not just a movie theme. It's a life for many. Who are we? Who are we? Letter D, persons of great potential. Persons of great potential. Verse 7 says, you do not lack any spiritual gift. In other words, God has held back no gift that could help them be the church and do his work. By virtue of receiving Jesus Christ, you have been given special gifts and abilities. And one of the, one of the great travesties of the church for all throughout history is that, is that people have gifts and they have a function, they have an important role to play and they don't, either they don't know or they refuse to participate or they're afraid, there are a lot of reasons we don't, not sure where we fit in this body. And, and we'll study this more in depth when we get to the middle of 1 Corinthians, but it talks about a physical body and how every part is so important. And you know, you, you think, uh, what, what importance is the spleen? Or um, you know, the appendix, what does that do? Or some of these things, we don't know what they do, but, but God put them there. There are, there are parts of the body that, you know, take the thyroid. The thyroid, it's a little butterfly-shaped thing here. I've had some issues with it at times. And uh, if it malfunctions, your whole body gets out of whack. Your metabolism goes up and down. It's just crazy. It's just a little thing, but it has an important function. Somebody hears a thyroid in the body of Christ. And an important part. Many people go through their entire life and never understand their role and importance. Everybody's important. Trying to, trying to discover that. We have the network seminar. This is not a plug in May. We had to reschedule it to May, but helping people understand and discover your spiritual gifts because everybody has at least one or usually more and have a role to play in the church, which isn't the building. Most of it happens outside the building, by the way, but exercising spiritual gifts. Now, the Corinthians were using some of their spiritual gifts in a negative way. They were causing harm, and he addresses that, and we can talk about that too. But most of them just needed to have the knowledge that they had a spiritual gift and they had something to contribute to the body of Christ, the church. And he affirms them, as he does us, that Everyone has great potential. Everyone has great abilities. And you have been endowed supernaturally, spiritually. So God has reserved you. Okay, I hope we made that point. God has reserved you. God can use you. Finally, who are we? We are a people of hope. We are a people of hope. Have you ever felt like you weren't going to be able to finish something? Weren't going to be able to finish something, a race, a class, a job, a school, maybe lasting in a marriage? In verses 8 and 9, he talks about hope. In verse 8, he says, He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. Confirmed to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, he's referring to the second coming of Christ at the end of time. But he's saying, I will keep you to the end. In other words, you'll be able to make it the long haul. Paul's trying to give them confidence and set the problems they face in the context of eternity. This is a marathon, not a sprint. The long view. Who are we? We are the people that God has confirmed and will deliver blameless when we finally see Jesus face to face. 2 Timothy 1, 12 says, 
Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. Wow. He's able to, to hold on to you and your faith and deliver you ultimately. That gives us hope. Finally, number three, who is God? Who is God? God is faithful. God is faithful. And we'll study more about what that means. So who are we? The local church, recipients of God's love and grace, recipients of spiritual riches, persons of great potential, people of hope, and who is God? God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity we have to take a journey through this great letter. And I pray, God, that you would speak truth and, and transform us week by week as we look at this letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. I pray, Father, that, that we would see your strength, your faithfulness, that you are faithful. And as we move through this, Lord, that you would just speak to us, transform our hearts. And, and Father, encourage us today by your word in Jesus' name.